The heart and soul of Christianity is quite simply belief in Jesus. Not belief in a higher power, not belief in a high moral standard, not belief in the brotherhood of mankind, but belief in Jesus. And since many do still claim our country to be a Christian nation, it shouldn't surprise us to discover that most people among us do believe in Jesus to one degree or another. Almost everyone believes him to be an important historical figure and one of the greatest teachers of all time. Many believe him to be a prophet of God and even more believe him to be the Savior. Many have come to understand that he is actually the one who created them, and they expect him to return someday to judge them. So indeed, there are varieties of beliefs about Jesus and varying degrees of belief in Jesus. So saying you believe in Jesus does not necessarily make you a Christian, nor does belief in Jesus necessarily constitute saving faith. And as you may have already guessed, our text for today gives us the opportunity to explore differing levels of belief in Jesus, beginning with belief in his reputation and building through belief in his power and in his word to belief in his person. I think it'll do us all good to compare our belief in Jesus with the levels of belief that were seen in Galilee after Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in Samaria. We continue our study in John's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning with verse 43. And after the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now Jesus had just spent two unplanned days ministering in Samaria, and many there believed in him. Initially, they believed because of the woman's testimony, but after spending time with him, their faith became personal. Some even came to the conviction that Jesus was the Savior of the world, and they were right. Jesus was to become the Savior of the world. But for now, his mission was to the lost sheep of Israel, so he pressed on to Galilee, having left Judea because he was becoming too popular there. Now, the Pharisees had noted his popularity and were hoping to use it as a, a wedge between Jesus and John the Baptist. It had become obvious that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more repentant Jews 
than were the disciples of John. So to annoy, uh, avoid unnecessary competition and a premature confrontation with the Jewish authorities, Jesus decided to head back to Galilee. And Galilee, as you may know, was the northern Jewish province and Jesus' homeland, having been brought up in the town of Nazareth. But John, this then says something that seems a bit confusing in this context. He says, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now we know that Jesus would later say that when his authority was being questioned while teaching in the synagogue at Nazareth. But why does John make note of it here? It seems a bit strange, but several suggestions have been made, but the one that makes the most sense to me is that Jesus hoped there would be a more limited response to his ministry in Galilee because it was his own country and that he intentionally went there because of it. And indeed, Jesus was at times cursed with too much popularity. He couldn't always do what he thought most important because of the pressing needs of the crowds that flocked to see him. And his popularity with the masses brought him unwanted attention from the Jewish authorities. So Jesus headed home, where people would tend to think of him more as the carpenter's son than the savior of the world. When he got there, however, his newly developed reputation preceded him. He may not have been honored as savior of the world, but he was definitely received as someone special. Some of the Galileans had been in Jerusalem during the feast, and they had no doubt seen or at least heard of his confrontation with the authorities while there. He'd staged a protest against the oppressive practices going on in the temple and had single-handedly driven out the merchants and the money changers. He was now a small-town boy back from the big city with quite a reputation. Now, what they actually believed about him, we're not told. But he was obviously received as a celebrity. And many people receive Jesus like that today. You know, they've heard about him, and they know he's important. They may even believe all that they've heard about him. But they've had very little, if any, firsthand contact with him. They simply know he's an important man who did some great things somewhere else. That's a belief in his reputation, and it is belief in Jesus. But it's not saving faith. But it can be the first step on the road to a deeper faith, and that was certainly true for a royal official who came to see him. Jesus, he came, therefore, again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. 
When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, it was in Cana where Jesus performed his first miracle, turning water into wine. And even though that miracle had been done very quietly without any fanfare, apparently word got out of Jesus' ability to perform miracles. And when he got back to town, everyone was talking about his return, even in Capernaum, some 20 miles away. And in Capernaum, There was a man with a very sick son who was at death's door. Now, the word used to describe the man indicates that he was an official from the court of a king, and that would be King Herod, tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, son of Herod the Great, who had been given a fourth of the kingdom to rule as a puppet king under the Romans at his father's death. Now, we don't know if this man was Jewish or not, you know, actually serving in the court of Herod would have been frowned upon by most Jews. But whether Jew or Gentile, he's the first person of record to approach Jesus with a request for healing. He had heard of Jesus' ability to perform miracles and traveled from Capernaum to Cana, hoping that Jesus would heal his son. He really didn't know if Jesus could heal or would if he could, but he was desperate. And when you love someone, you try anything. And this man was willing to try Jesus. So he came and begged Jesus to come to Capernaum and heal his son. Jesus response is a bit disturbing. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now, the New American Standard makes it clear that Jesus wasn't just talking to the man and added the word people because the you that's used was plural. But it still sounds harsh. But Jesus was simply stating the fact that he was disturbed by people who only believe when they see him perform signs and wonders, those who always want him to do something miraculous. Now, Jesus hadn't come to be a miracle worker, but to be Savior. He came to offer mankind the hope of eternal life, but all most wanted was a miracle, a quick fix to a temporary situation. Those he healed of diseases and afflictions would eventually die, and those he raised from the dead would die again. So his primary mission was not to bring temporary relief from hardship and pain, but to bring eternal victory over death and condemnation. Nevertheless, 
he did perform miracles as a sign to confirm his authority over the bondage of sin and death. But he was frustrated by people who only wanted to see miracles and wouldn't believe in him unless they got the miracle they were after. I think he's frustrated by the same thing today. If you don't get what you want from Jesus, do you stop believing in him? If he doesn't answer your prayers the way you think he should, do you reject him? Some do. They only believe in him when they see his power working for them. If the miracles stop, they stop believing. Well, Jesus undoubtedly knew this man wouldn't believe in him at all if he refused to do anything for him. But to do exactly as the man requested would have lowered Jesus to the level of a miracle worker. And the man's faith in Jesus would never have been stretched far enough to become saving faith. So Jesus took the man a step further and gave him the opportunity to develop belief in his word. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Jesus simply told the man to go home because his son was alive. He didn't assure him that he would do what the man wanted, that he would heal his son. All he said was, go your way. Your son lives. Now, the man probably assumed that meant that his son was going to get better, but Jesus didn't actually say that. And he offered no proof that what he did say, that his word was true. He didn't do anything miraculous in the man's presence to assure him that his son was even still alive. He just said, go your way. Your son lives. And the man believed him and left. I'm sure that was a hard thing to do. He had asked Jesus to come down with him. And now he had been told to just go home alone. But he did believe the word that Jesus spoke. That his son was alive. And he acted upon his belief. John says he started off. Now. It was late when he had met Jesus, the seventh hour, or 7 p.m. Roman time. So he did apparently spend the night in Cana. But he no doubt hit the road first thing the next morning. And while on the road, he met some of his slaves coming with good news. His son was alive and getting better. He 
then did something that was very important. He looked for a connection between what Jesus had said and what had happened. He asked what time the boy had started getting better, and the slaves told him the fever had left at 7 o'clock. He knew the healing had been caused by Jesus. He looked back and saw the hand of Jesus at work. He saw that Jesus had done what he, in effect, had said he would do. And that affirmation of the truthfulness of Jesus' word took his faith even further to faith in his person. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. You know, the father didn't dismiss his son's healing as a mere coincidence. He knew it had been caused by Jesus. Jesus had done what he had intimated he would do. The man now knew something of the character of Jesus. He had personal experience with Jesus, and his experience with Jesus enabled him to believe in Jesus. He knew he could trust him, trust him to do more than expected, even more than promised, in ways he didn't understand. And his faith in the character, the person of Jesus, was then shared by his household. They all believed in him. Now what they knew about Jesus, we don't know. We don't know if they believed him to be the Messiah or Savior of the world or Son of God. We don't even know if they had saving faith in Jesus, but they believed in him and knew they could trust him. We obviously know more about Jesus than they did. In addition to personal experience with Jesus and the experience of other believers for 2,000 years, we have the testimony of Scripture. And as John will note near the end of his gospel, these things were written that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life in his name. So what about you this morning? You know, I assume you wouldn't be here if you didn't believe in Jesus. But what do you believe about him? If you're only here because you believe in his reputation, I challenge you to get to know him personally. Spend time with him in his word and in prayer. If you're here because you believe in his power, and think by coming you will have access 
to the power of prayer to get what you want, I challenge you to look beyond the temporary to the eternal. If you have belief in his word, that is good. Study his word. Trust in his word. But don't worship a book. Worship the Savior to whom the book points. Go all the way to belief in the person of Jesus. We sang that song, you're the good, good father. That's who you are. That's who you are. That's who you are. The same is true of Jesus. We know he's a good, good savior. We know who he is. That's who he is. That's who he is. We've seen him in all of his ways. So we can trust him. We trust who he is with a saving faith. And if we have that kind of faith, he will save us. He'll save us from an empty life and from eternal separation from our creator. If you've not already done so, I trust you will come and express your saving faith in the person of Jesus. You know, when we say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's not just a doctrinal statement. That's a statement in who he is. We've come to trust him. We trust him with our daily life. We trust him with the immediate future. We trust him with the care of our children and grandchildren. We trust him with our church. We trust him with our eternal life. I pray. I pray we have that kind of belief in Jesus. We don't have trust in our goodness. We don't have trust in religion. We don't have trust in our good works. We have trust in a good, good father, a good savior, and we only trust him. Let's express that together. Let's stand.